Well, this is it, folks. We're finishing the book of Genesis. This is the end of the beginning. But here's the question. Is it the beginning of the end? I don't know about that. <clears throat> the title of the sermon doesn't actually reflect any of my teaching points. It's just a nod to the fact that it is the last sermon in our series on Genesis. The world, well, it's gotten pretty fake. I don't know if you've noticed that. And I'll tell you something that you might not want to hear. It's going to get a lot worse. Maybe we've gotten used to people's Photoshop pictures. That's been around for a while. You know, smiling faces on Sunday morning, whether you're actually happy or not. Fake grass in our yards and on our sports fields. But with the development of newer technologies, things are being taken to a whole new level. Actually, take a look at this uh, quick video. Don't worry, Brennan, we don't need sound for this. Uh, it's only about 10 seconds. It's a scrolling through of uh, people's faces. Pretty simple. I mean, it just looks like a bunch of people's faces that have been put into some really fast slideshow, right? But here's the thing. All of those people are fake. Those are not real people. They were created by artificial intelligence. And that was two years ago. So what you need to brace yourself for is a world of fake. Already with AI in its infancy stage as a consumer product, we're seeing fake songs sweep across the internet, fake interviews, fake videos, filtering technology on video apps has gotten crazy. And of course, it's only going to get exponentially better very quickly. And I'm being serious when I say that we could enter a time in human history when photo and video evidence is not admissible to prosecute crimes. With everything being so fake, one of the bad side effects of that too is that it makes us suspicious all the time. And that's not healthy. It's dangerous. It's not a good position for humans' default to be suspicion of everyone and everything all the time. And as we finish Genesis, we're going to be comforted with the reality that God is not fooled by the fake stuff, by our filters, our artificial intelligence, our deep fake videos, or even the faking that we do in our own minds and hearts with Him. He sees what is real. Furthermore, Joseph's brothers struggled with a suspicious attitude, as we will see. And that can be a huge temptation for us. But it is something that I think we can learn to fight. But before we get started in chapter 49, I'll pray, God, uh, I ask that you would just move, just work, do what you need to do in us today. Thank you for these two chapters that we're going to be studying. Thank you for preserving these truths and these stories for so long, God, and, and giving us the ability. We, we can open up a book right in front of us. We can see it on our phones. We can take it with us everywhere that we go. We can study it. We can memorize it. God, what an amazing thing that we have. Amazing privilege. And uh, so just 
Use me and, and use us, use your word this morning. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to start with just verse 1, chapter 49. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. So Jacob brings his boys together and tells them that he's going to reveal how things are going to go in their family in the future. And this one says in the days to come. Other translations might say in the last days. And we will see that some things that Jacob says point all the way to Jesus. Verse 2 and 3, come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength and the firstfruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power. So we can try to imagine the way these guys felt as they gathered around their elderly father, whom God had used in such extraordinary ways. And, and there was probably this mixture of emotions, right? Excitement, but also dread. Now, maybe, maybe they were all optimistic and excited and thought their dad was going to say really good things about them. But I think it's pretty likely that a lot of them were afraid of what he might say because of some things that had happened in their life. And we get started with Reuben, the oldest, and wherever his mind was, after Jacob starts, he's feeling pretty good. He's starting to get excited. You know, he's talking about how much he's excelled, and so... You can, you can just sense this excitement building up in Reuben's mind and his heart. And then verse 4 says, Turbulent as water, you will not excel because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it. He got into my bed. So Jacob filled up Reuben's balloon and then popped it. And he's like, Oh, my firstborn, my oldest, you have excelled. But that is over. And that's what happens. Kent Hughes pointed out that after Reuben's descendants settled in the Transjordan, they soon disappeared from history. No prophet or judge or king would ever come from the tribe of Reuben. So now at the very beginning, Jacob puts everyone on edge, right? Like maybe they were feeling excited, but now they're feeling sick to their stomach. And they're like, oh no, what is he going to say to me? So he moves on. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. So Simeon and Levi don't fare any better than Reuben. They were rebuked for what had happened in Shechem. And if you don't remember that story, you can go back sometime this week, read Genesis chapter 34, and you'll be reminded about how they lied to the people of Shechem, set them up, and then murdered all the men in the city, which got them a sharp rebuke and a bleak future from Jacob. John Salehammer noted that the tribe of Simeon virtually disappears from the biblical narrative after the conquest of the land of Canaan. And so neither of these tribes, as Jacob says, would end up having their own apportionment of the land and the inheritance. He says they will be scattered, they will be dispersed. The tribe of Levi, Salehammer also pointed out, they redeemed themselves a little bit uh, with Moses and everything with the golden calf, because they actually were on the right side of the issues there with the golden calf. But they would end up becoming the priestly tribe, and so they also would never get their own portion of the land allotted to them. 
verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion, my son. You return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. So a lot more lines get dedicated to Judah, and rightfully so, because Judah would be the lineage through which the Messiah would come. He's chosen to be the royal line. Jesus here is the rightful bearer of the scepter that's talking about. The obedience of the peoples belong to Christ. And notice that that is plural. It's not talking about the obedience of a nation or a people. It is the peoples, which so much of Scripture confirms about Christ, Psalm 2, 7, and 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Talking about Christ. Also looking to Christ's future reign. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jacob describes Judah as a lion, right? Which also makes us think of a title that was given to Christ in the book of Revelation as the Lion of Judah. Chapter 5 in Revelation Verses 4 and 5, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Also, same chapter, verse 9, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And of course, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The obedience of the nations belongs to Jesus. And verse 11 seems to point to a time uh, in, in Genesis where we uh, were just reading where grapes and wine would be so abundant that uh, you could tie your donkey to a grapevine and not care. You know, you could wash your clothes in wine and it wouldn't hurt your bank account. That's what it's talking about. I, I don't know if it would help your clothes, but it wouldn't hurt your bank account. And that makes us think about Jesus turning water into wine, right? I also wonder if it points to the millennial reign of Christ after the tribulation, I don't know, but it, there's no doubt that Jacob is pointing to Jesus through the line of Judah. And J Judah receives a huge blessing from his father. Now, if 
you recall, Judah would have had his own reasons to be fearful of what Jacob might say. He knocked up his daughter-in-law thinking that she was a prostitute. We remember that story. But the thing about Judah, though, is not... The thing about him is his, his humility and his repentant heart. You see, Jacob was not focused on Judah's sin, but he saw his humbleness, his repentance, and that's what brought this blessing in his life. And we know, we talk about this all the time, the fact that God sees our hearts. We know that. But I think it's also worth reminding us of how wonderful and beautiful of a truth that is because this world is full of people who try to portray themselves as gracious, generous, humble. However, the, off, the reality is often that people are faking it. Right? They're trying to look the part so that they can reap the benefits of being seen as having those characteristics. Sometimes it literally pays to look generous. Right? So we'll have individuals, businesses, corporations who portray themselves as one thing for public relations purposes when in reality they are anything but. And they really only care about the bottom line. They're not giving sacrificially, but superficially. They have decided that whatever they're portraying themselves as is an investment that will pay off for them. Right? And in the world, all we have to go by is what we see. So we have manipulative, greedy, proud people who often are portrayed as exactly the opposite. But that doesn't work with God. Not in any little bit at all, right? He is not fooled by humans' donations, by our photo ops, by our endorsements, by our handshakes and fake smiles. Furthermore, he's not fooled by the fake apologies that are sweeping across our nation right now. And to take it into our own lives, he's not fooled by our fake apologies, by our fake repentance, by our artificial kindness and sacrifice. If you pay attention to our culture, you know how fake everything is. That's how I started talking about this. We are being inundated with fake ideologies, fake rage, fake praise, fake apologies, fake endorsements, fake photos, fake bodies, fake news. It's so bad that we don't ever know what to believe anymore. And we don't know what anyone believe, act, truly thinks anymore. But God does not have any trouble with that. He knows exactly what's going on behind every curtain and inside every person. And he chose Judah to be the lion, the royal tribe. Why? I don't have all the answers, but I think it had a lot to do with Judah's heart and also the heart of his future descendant, David. And now when I talk about this and, and I point out the fact that God sees through all of our fake, all of our junk, all of our superficiality, that might scare some of you. All right? But I'm hoping that that can change. I'm hoping that it can be something that you eventually will take joy in. I am glad that God sees through all that stuff because how awful would it be if he didn't? Do you want a God who can be duped? I mean, really, like, it's a good thing because nobody can fake their way with God. Nobody can fake their way into heaven. Unlike weddings, there's not going to be any heaven crashers 
who aren't meant to be there. It's comforting knowing that God knows our hearts. Now, that might not be the case if we were talking about an unjust, imperfect, harsh God, unloving, but we are talking about someone who's perfect, who's just, who's loving. And so it's a good thing that he sees everything. It's reassuring that he sees all, that he knows all, that he judges all in the end, and that he gets it right every single time. And because he is loving, he doesn't judge me based on my goodness, but rather Christ's righteousness. So what would scare me is if it was any other way. If we were worshiping any other kind of God. So praise him for seeing through that stuff. We'll continue in verses 13 through 28. Zebulun will live by the seashore and will be a harbor for ships and his territory will be next to Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the saddlebags. He saw that his resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he leaned his shoulder to bear load and became a forced laborer. Dan will judge his people in one of the tribes, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the road, a viper beside the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, Lord. Gad will be attacked by raiders, but he will attack their heels. Asher's food will be rich, and he will produce royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine beside a spring, its branches climb over the wall. The archers attacked him, shot at him, were hostile toward him, yet his bow remained steady, and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. By the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, and blessings of the breasts and the womb. The blessings of your Father excel the blessings of my ancestors, and the bounty of the ancient hills. May, the rest, may they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince of his brothers. Benjamin is a wolf. He tears his prey. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the plunder. These are the tribes of Israel, twelve in all, and this is what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one with a suitable blessing. So most of these men don't get very many words from Jacob, but Joseph got the most. And Jacob spoke about how Joseph was fruitful despite all of the things that he had to endure. And moving forward, the history of Israel would be tied up mainly in the tribes of Judah and Joseph. But Psalm 78, 67 and 68 says, He also rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. So still we know... In hindsight, we know that God chose Judah over Joseph. Was it because Judah was a better man than Joseph? I doubt that. I have no reason to believe that. But God had a plan, and that plan worked through the tribe of Judah and through David. Of course, we can look back in hindsight, and we know that all of the tribes were on a roller coaster. They all turned away from God a lot. You know, they got into those vicious cycles of rebellion. But in hindsight, we do see that the tribe of Judah would rebel less than the others. 
And, and so we get the benefit of looking back at that. But now we're, we're going to continue and finish 49 and go into chapter 50. Then he commanded them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave is in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan. This is the field Abraham purchased from Ephron the Hittite as burial property. Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried there. Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried there. And I buried Leah there. The field and the cave in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving charges to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, took his last breath, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants, who were physicians, to embalm his father, so they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this, for embalming takes that long. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, If I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me take an oath, saying, I am about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father, then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father, in keeping with your oath. Then Joseph went to bury his father. And all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him along with all Joseph's family, his brothers and his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with him. It was a very impressive procession. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is across the Jordan. So Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah, in the land in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as burial property from Ephron the Hittite. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. So Jacob gets a funeral. A funeral worthy of a man who was leaving behind a legacy of faith and commitment to the Lord. Now, I don't have a lot to say about this section because last week I already preached on his desire to not be buried in Egypt, but instead to be taken back to Canaan because he trusted God's promises and saw God preparing a place for them. But what strikes me here is the grand nature of this funeral. I like it. I like to see believers have big funerals. All right, I do. There's just something about gathering the people of God together to celebrate a life that was characterized by faith and commitment to the Lord. I think it is a beautiful thing to honor and celebrate the lives of faithful Christians. And funerals are the best time to do it because you don't have to worry about pride anymore, right? I mean, like when, as we're living our lives, I mean, we all like to be encouraged. So if, if I do my job well, if I live my life well, like it's it, it, wonderful to be encouraged, but you don't want to be put on a pedestal because then pride seeks in. But after someone's dead, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You're not going to lift them up and, and put pride in their head. 
You're just celebrating their life. So I say when strong believers pass away, I like to, I like to see it go big. It's awesome. It's, it's not to worship them. It's not in any way to act like they did anything apart from God's grace and power in their lives. Of course not. It's not about recognition. It's just about celebration. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate our brothers and sisters in Christ who leave behind an example worth imitating, right? Who, who endured the race and finished. And I think it's a great opportunity when Christians die. It's a really great opportunity that I don't think should be squandered. Now, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad who has done something different, you know, in the past when... when a loved one died. But I encourage anyone who has that choice in the future to really think about that. And I'll tell you, I know some people, before they die, they tell their family. They're like, just don't do anything for me. Make it small. Make it, just don't, don't make a big deal out of this. And I think that comes from a wonderful place of humility. But I'm not making that request. So if I die, you don't have to do that. But I, I, here's what I do. I think about like if Leslie died. All right, and what I would want to do for her. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ, friends and family all over, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, here, West Africa, and others scattered across the place. So I would want to get as many of them together as possible. I mean, it would be, you know, just get a big venue and as many as, as could come to the, the, the main location, get them there, and then others can gather physically and have satellite live stream gatherings, you know, all over the place. Just because, like, it, I would want to celebrate her life because it's worth celebrating. And Jacob's life was worth celebrating, and that's why they did this. They mourned for 70 days, and they took this huge procession from Egypt to Canaan. It was such a big deal that the Canaanites renamed the location. The mourning, mourning of Egypt is what it meant. So it was such a big deal that people who were not even involved couldn't help but take notice of what was going on. They were like, whoa, like somebody that these people really loved has died, and they want to honor them. And I think that's the way it should be in the Christian world. I, I mean, I know that a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history have died in obscurity, and that is perfectly fine. Again, it's not about the recognition. The only recognition that matters is being welcomed into the arms of Christ. But I, I just think it's a beautiful thing to celebrate and to honor the lives of faithful Christians. And it's a good opportunity so I'll just leave it at that, and we'll continue. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them 
and spoke kindly to them. Now, of course, on Easter, I already preached on verse 20. But this part of the story is really unfortunate and it's really revealing. These guys didn't actually believe that Joseph had forgiven them. They thought that it could all be fake for the sake of their father. And I think Joseph cried when he heard their message because he was so hurt at the idea that they thought that he had not forgiven them. And and we don't even know, for one thing, we don't even, it sounds like a lie, right? We don't have any record of Jacob actually saying this. It sounds like they made up a lie. We don't even know if Jacob knew what happened. You know, there's no actual text that shows us that they ever truly confessed and repented. But it's sad to think that you could spend 17 years proving your love to people and then find out they think there's a chance you've been faking it the whole time. Victor Hamilton said their hatred for Joseph is real, but Joseph's hatred of them is only imaginary. And there's a sad reality that I've seen in, in some Christians' lives. It, I think that some followers of Jesus believe they have the spiritual gift of suspicion. Seriously. I mean, for whatever reason, some Christians are constantly suspicious of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I get that some of you have been hurt. You know, I, I, but believers are called to assume the best, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. And nobody likes having their intentions and motives constantly questioned based on no evidence and for no good reason other than pure suspicion, which is exactly what was happening to Joseph. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Without hesitation, I know that you know someone like that, or you might be that person. You might think people always have ulterior motives, and you imagine in your mind that they are going to hurt you because you are projecting what someone else has done to you onto innocent people. And can I tell you that if you've been hurt, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you have found out that someone was completely different than who you thought they were. I'm sorry if you discovered someone living a double life. That stinks. It is not easy to go through. But holding on to it and carrying that into every other relationship for the rest of your life is only going to hurt you and everyone around you. A life filled with suspicion, is not a life filled with grace. We all need to be discerning. Okay, and and so when we have real evidence and legitimate reasons to question someone or something, we shouldn't just sit on that and ignore it. But some might have a predisposition towards suspicion, and I would encourage you, I implore you to fight that because it is not healthy, It is not godly. It's also not logical. I mean, people do this sort of thing with churches all the time, right? Like they get hurt by a church and then they take on this mentality that like, oh, now I'm going to keep being a Christian, but I'm going to reject God's people. I'm going to reject church, which we... But here's the thing. Have any of you ever had a bad experience at a restaurant? Anybody? Yeah? 
Did you denounce restaurants? That one, maybe. Yeah, that one. But not all restaurants, right? Any of you ever had bad service at a store? Did you stop shopping after that? Did you stop going to stores? No, because that would be silly. And, and you know, and for one thing, in that example, it's so important. Like, no, you can't just stop shopping. You have to do it. And of course, we know that the Bible teaches us how important meeting with the people of God is, how important God's people are to his plan and his mission for us. And so, and I get that the hurt in certain circumstances, it's deeper, right? It's deeper in a church than it is at a restaurant or a, or a store. But I want you to realize that Satan wants to capitalize on someone else hurting you and get you to start hurting yourself. And that is what a suspicious attitude does. And so sometimes we are suspicious because we are projecting what someone else has done onto innocent people. And there's other things too, though. Sometimes we just get in our heads and we just start to fear the worst. Kent Hughes told a story. I'm going to read it to you. He said, when you fear that the worst will happen, your mind can do strange things. Like the Chicagoan who was driving on a lonely country road one dark and rainy night and had a flat. He opened the trunk. No lug wrench. The light from a farmhouse could be seen dimly up the road. So he set out on foot through the driving rain. Surely the farmer would have a lug wrench he could borrow, he thought. Of course it was late at night. The farmer would be asleep in his warm, dry bed. Maybe he would not answer the door. And even if he did, he would be angry at being awakened in the middle of the night. The city boy, picking his way blindly in the dark, stumbled on. By now his shoes and clothing were soaked. Even if the farmer did answer his knock, he would probably shout something like, What's the big idea waking me up at this hour? This thought made the city boy angry. What right did that farmer have to refuse him the loan of a lug wrench? After all, he was stranded in the middle of nowhere, soaked to the skin. The farmer was a selfish clod, no doubt about that. That man, the man finally reached the house and banged loudly on the door. A light went on inside and a window opened above. A voice cried out, who is it? His face, white with anger, the man called out, you know who it is, it's me. And you can keep your lug wrench. I wouldn't borrow it now if you had the last one on earth. Negative expectations, right? We get in our heads. And the things that are happening inside of us set the stage for what happens on the outside. And as followers of Christ, like I said, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. We need to assume the best. We need to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. And we need to forgive when people let us down. Joseph, even though he had been hurt by his brothers, hurt deeply, he was not the suspicious one. He had forgiven them. But his brothers were suspicious even though Joseph had done nothing but love them. And I want you to remember that it's his brothers who were carrying this around inside of themselves for 17 years. The, fact, the thought that he hadn't forgiven them. Of course, they were carrying other stuff for many years before that. And that hurts them. And so we can learn from their mistakes and from Joseph's good example. Let's finish these last few verses. 
Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. So there you have it. The end of Genesis. How does it feel? You know, this series, probably, it was actually, it was a year. That's all it was. It was a year. It was, the actual Genesis sermons equate to almost exactly a year's worth of sermons. Uh, there's a few recordings that we ended up losing, but I think it's around like 52 to 54, somewhere right in there. Now, the series actually started the last Sunday of January last year, but of course we've had non-Genesis sermons mixed in over the past however many months that is. And there's a lot of doctrine that we learned in Genesis. Of course, God as creator and creation itself, we learned that evolution and scripture are not compatible with what we see in the Bible. We also learned that God made man and woman, which is pretty important. And he is the one who created and defined marriage as between one man and one woman he created humans to rule and subdue the earth and the other creatures on the earth. And we are made specially over the other creatures in creation. In the image of God, we were introduced to sin and the effects that it had on ourselves and this world. So you see, we, we had these kind of four foundational relationships. Our relationship to God, to each other, to ourselves, and to the earth itself. And those were all perfect before sin, but then afterwards they were all ruined. They were corrupted. So we are separated from God. We have conflict amongst one another. We can't even trust ourselves. Our hearts are deceitful. So we have sinful natures. And then we have this world where now there's natural disasters that kill us and, and threaten us. Animals are not all safe and, and cozy anymore. The, it's hard to make food from the ground. Genesis 8:22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So we learned there that climate alarmism does not fit with a Christian worldview. Not that we're not supposed to be good stewards of this world, but the idea that at some point humans are just going to die off because we screwed up the earth, that's not going to happen. We see that from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation when God shows us exactly how things are going to pan out. We learned how the world came to have so many divisions and languages, right? The Tower of Babel. We've explored all kinds of personal faith issues as we watched God's chosen people ride their roller coasters of faith, and we explored how alike we are to them. There are so many foundational truths that we learned in Genesis that are absolutely essential to the Christian faith and life. And if we step back for a second and think about Genesis, we see a story unfolding, Right? We, uh, it's a story of a creator 
who loved his creation but also understood that love is a choice that needs to be made and not something that needs to be forced. And so angels had their choice to obey or disobey God. Of course, Satan and many others chose their path. And then humans had their choice, and we chose our path to disobey God. And we, but he didn't forsake us, right? He did not forsake us. Instead, he started working out a rescue plan. And that started with kicking us out of the garden, which was good for us because if we had stayed and eaten from another tree, then we would have lived forever in sinfulness, which is no good for us. And then he had mercy on us. I know mercy is a weird word to use with the flood, but he had mercy on us and destroyed the world with a flood because our sin was getting so bad that it was better in the end to restart the human race through the family of Noah. And then God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And God chose him and made a covenant with him that would be the driving force of the rest of the Old Testament and lead us to and prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. The ultimate solution for our sins and our brokenness and the rescue of God's people. So while it might look like Genesis, it might feel like Genesis was such a big series, when you step back and you look at things in perspective, I've got a Bible here, and this is the end, let's see, I'll get to the beginning here, of Genesis. When you look at it in perspective, and you realize that this is basically how much of this Bible Genesis takes up. I mean, look at this. This is so little. And we think about all of the mind-altering, life-transforming things that we learn just from studying the book of Genesis. And then we realize that there is so much more here for us. And that's why we need to be committed to reading this book and studying this book and applying it to our lives because we may be at the end, but it is just the beginning. And so if you don't have a plan and a commitment in your life to read through the entire Bible and to do it again and again and again, you are just hurting yourself as a Christian. So we are at the end, but it is only the beginning. <clears throat> 